So this is the last talk of the retreat. And I'd like to use it to pull together a number of threads around the theme of secular Buddhism. And I'm going to call it a, a culture of awakening. And I'd like to start by just reflecting on the approach that um, I'm using about the, uh, the canonical uh, sources and texts that I'm interested in and I've been using uh, for some years now, those from primarily uh, the Pali Canon. And one could, of course, just go through the Canon and select the bits that you like and say, this is what the Buddha said. And someone else could go through the canon and select another bunch of texts and say, no, no, this is what the Buddha said. Who should you believe? Without having some sort of, um, well, what is called technically a hermeneutic strategy, in other words, a theory of interpretation, some sort of justification for choosing this passage over that passage, then the whole exercise would be purely arbitrary. It would just be passages that happen to conform to my personal prejudices, likes and dislikes. So I've thought about this and I've come up with a, an approach that I think is reasonable. And that is to ask myself, what is it within these early discourses that cannot be derived from the culture of the Buddha's time. Now we know a fair bit now from historical studies as to what people, broadly speaking, believed around the 5th century BC in India. A lot of this was informed by the Brahminic beliefs that you find in the Vedas and the Upanishads, as well as um, ideas that were found in the uh, teachings of the Jains. The Jains actually predate the Buddhists as a tradition, although their, their founder, Mahavir, was a contemporary of the Buddha. So if I find a passage in the canon, which might just as well have been said by a Brahmin priest or a Jain monk, in other words, something about, say, reincarnation or the law of karma or the idea that the aim of the practice is to free oneself from the cycle of birth and death, then I can put that to one side as simply a teaching, a doctrine that was shared in common by philosophers, religious teachers, priests of that period. I'm not thereby saying that therefore those things are not true. I don't know. I'm just using this as a device to be able to tease apart what was of the culture of the Buddha's time and what he taught that was original, that you can't trace, as far as we can know in terms of our current knowledge, you can't trace these ideas to some prior cultural belief. And in pursuing this approach, 
I've come up with four um, teachings that strike me as being original to the Buddha. You don't find them elsewhere. I'm sorry it's another set of four. <laughs> and again, for sake of convenience, I call them the four P's. <laughs> Not P's in a pod, but capital P apostrophe S. The first one is the principle of um, conditioned arising. In other words, an idea that the Buddha himself claims to have been what brought him and constituted his awakening was his um, seeing the ground of conditioned arising. Now, sometimes this is translated as dependent origination. Another word we might use is, is conditionality or contingency. And this is a principle in the sense that in its most economic formulation it is the idea when this is, that occurs. When this is not, that does not occur. It's then teased out into links of conditioned arising such as the 12 links. And I feel it is very much at the heart of what renders the Buddha's teaching distinctive. In other words, there's nothing within his teaching that, is, um, that requires some unconditional or uh, non-contingent ultimate reality to prop it up. Everything within the teaching is a, based on the principle of conditionality. Pure, sheer contingency. No non-contingent ultimates are required. The second P is, stands for process, and this is the process of the four that we spoke about last time, the four being the way I've boiled down the four noble truths into embracing dukkha, which leads to the letting go of craving, which leads to the stopping of craving, which leads to the creation and the cultivation of a way of life. And as you'll see, this is just an instantiation of when this is, that arises, when this is not, that does not arise. In other words, the four, when seen as tasks, follow the law of conditioned arising. One gives rise to two, two gives rise to three, three gives rise to four. And that describes a process which is a way of life. So the principle, the first P, conditioned arising describes as it were the sort of the basic framework of thought and practice and that is then um, translated into the process of the four tasks, the four, four noble tasks. The third P stands for practice and I mean practice here primarily in terms of mindfulness. This, I think, was again an original contribution of the Buddha. The word mindfulness, or shmurti in Sanskrit, was used in the Vedic times, but it meant to remember the holy scriptures, to memorize and remember. Sati shmurti, although we translate it as mindfulness, also means memory. But the Buddha uses this word, shmurti, sati, to describe a practice of meditation 
that in contrast to what was traditional in his period did not have anything to do with turning the mind inward in order to arrive at an ultimate reality or consciousness which was the practice in certainly in the Upanishads but rather it was a practice of mindfulness in which one turned one's attention to the phenomenal world in other words the world of conditioned arising the breath, the body, feelings, mental states and then finally the totality of what is arising and passing away in this purely contingent natural world and the fourth P stands for power and it has to do with the Buddha's emphasis on self-reliance which again is quite at odds with the particularly the the Brahminic Upanishadic tradition which sees um, authority or power residing in the guru uh, the teacher who has gained uh, a mystical experience of the ultimate nature of reality and that experience thereby authorizes that person to be a teacher and to then transmit through um, either oral tradition or through other forms of communication uh, the truth about the nature of reality whereas the Buddha encourages his um, followers um, to become independent of others in the teaching aparapachaya and that is the mark of someone who has entered the Eightfold Path is that they are now autonomous and again we have this famous expression shortly before the Buddha dies where he says be uh, a light, be an island to yourself have no other refuge but yourself, your utta, yourself have no other refuge but the Dhamma in other words the teaching and the practice itself that you have internalized, that is your authority not some other figure, some authority figure external to yourself Now let's try to just recap and put that back in the framework of Elsa. Embracing Dukkha, which is embracing life in all of its complexity and messiness and uh, slipperiness and impermanence and tragedy and joy, both within us and without us, in our own lives and the lives of others, uh, cultivating a... Um, a, a, a perspective, a sensibility, one that is grounded in mindful attention, that's grounded in an openness and a receptivity to the suffering of others, that is empathetic, and that is also infused with a degree of wonderment and surprise and astonishment. That's how I would understand it. And that perspective on life then leads to, quite naturally, of falling away of certain habits of reactivity. I want this, I don't like that, this is me, this is who I am, I'm going to do it my way. In other words, bypassing the immediacy of one's experience and, as it were, falling back on either what society has privileged as the good thing to do, what your religion 
has told you to do, what your past experience has told you to do. And that letting go of reactivity, or what the Buddhists call craving, leads to moments in which you experience a deep stilling and stopping of those patterns that opens up the possibility of embarking on a way of life that is not conditioned by reactivity. Now this can be understood, I think, both in, a, in, a, in terms of a lifelong commitment or framework for living, but I think we can also illustrate it in very concrete situations. I think ELSA is applicable in every moment, as well as being a paradigm or a model for how we wish our lives over 20, 30, 40, 50 years to unfold. Take, for example, a person who works as a counsellor or a therapist or a meditation teacher. And um, a person comes in to see you, a person who's perhaps in considerable distress. Now, you, at that moment, you, you know, in a sense, you're called upon to embrace the totality of that person's suffering. In doing so, you may notice that that leads to a falling away of your own agenda, your own wish to be seen as a good therapist or a good teacher, your own craving for recognition, your own craving to sort of get the job done so the next patient can come along and you can go home, or whatever it might be. When there's a genuine embrace of that person's dukkha, a real empathetic identification with the suffering of the other, naturally those reactive patterns fall away and you experience maybe a moment, maybe a sustained moment of stillness, of openness, from which you find yourself responding <coughs> in words or in acts in a way that surprises you. You might even find yourself saying, well, where did that come from? That piece of wisdom or that generous expression or that ability to hold the person's hand. And I think many of us have experienced this kind of thing, even if we don't work as, as counsellors or therapists. There's a naturalness, there's a, a capacity in which a generosity flows forth um, that's quite uncontrived, that seems almost weirdly disin disinterested, and yet is a total giving of yourself to the other person. Now that, I think, is a, one example of how ELSA can work in a single moment, or in a, let's say in a few moments. Another example would be taken from a very different uh, sphere of activity, that of uh, the artist, the person who's engaged in, in writing or, or painting or dance or uh, producing something that has not quite ever been imagined that way before. Creative work. And that too, I think, operates on the same sort of paradigm. First of all, there is a total in a sense, embrace of whatever it is you are seeking to articulate or give rise to, whatever it is that's sort of intuitively moving you, which might be very inchoate and unformed, but it's, uh, you're totally open to that. And in doing so, you somehow let go 
of a kind of uh, a, a derivative copying or modeling yourself on some sort of uh, thing you've done in the past or the inspiration of someone who you admire, whose work you admire. And in that stillness, you find yourself making a mark on a piece of paper or um, playing a piece of music that's coming from somewhere that's not conditioned by whatever it is that might have informed you or trained you. It's like the pianist who does years and years of practice and at a certain point when they become so uh, fluent in the technique of playing the instrument, um, it can just pour out without any kind of um, hesitation or, or self-consciousness. To illustrate this, I'd like to go back to the ancient Greeks, again to the skeptics, the tradition that comes from Pyrrho, uh, of Elis, the one who went to India with Alexander, who apparently before he became a philosopher was a painter. And there's a story that comes from Sextus Empiricus, who was a, a second century Roman skeptic, um, no, not Roman, Greek skeptic, um, who uh, tells us a story about a painter called Apelles. And Apelles was trying to paint the foamy saliva of a horse. Um, but he was so unsuccessful that he suddenly just gave up and threw the sponge he was cleaning his brushes with at the painting thus producing the perfect effect of the horse's foam. <laughs> now, uh, Sextus Empiricus considers that because Apelles experienced a moment of ataraxia. Ataraxia means non-disturbance of mind, which I think is very similar to the stopping of craving, the stopping of uh, reactivity. At a certain point, he gives up. And in the giving up, he opens up a spontaneity. With, it's very Zen-like, this story. A spontaneity in which, without contrivance, without trying to do it right, he just throws the sponge at the painting and gets it perfectly. Jackson Pollock, avant la lettre. <laughs> now, again, I think this is interesting because ataraxia, which is what Sextus Empiricus particularly affirms in this story is, I feel, the precondition for eudaimonia, for human flourishing. That you practice through meditation, or in this case through actual frustration, get to a point where your habits stop, and that's not the end of the path. You see, in traditionally Buddhism thinks that nibbana, or stopping, is what it's all about. From this example, and also from the way that I understand the four as a process, it's actually those moments of stopping that allow us to respond in a more spontaneous, in a more heartfelt, in a less derivative way. Whether it be responding to the suffering of our client in therapy or whether it be responding to the blank canvas or the sheet of paper um, if we're working as an artist or a writer. So I think it's useful to bring in these kinds of um, examples to somehow render this, these ideas a little bit more concrete 
and especially if we can take them from experiences that are familiar to us. I don't think Buddhism is telling us something we don't already know, but it's providing us with a language in which we can articulate and perhaps understand these human experiences more clearly, and at the same time find or discover ways of practice, ways of behavior, ways of thinking that can enhance and develop these qualities. So that would be an example of, of how ELSA functions in the moment. But of course also, it's a template for living a human life. And this I think we need to understand not only individually, but also communally. In the end, it's impossible to really consider a practice of the Dharma as something that only concerns me. And because whatever I do, particularly when it comes to how I speak and how I act physically, how I work, these are human behaviors that are unavoidably part of a wider context. They're embedded in relationships with other people, with other forms of life, with the environment, with the planet, with society. So practice can never be reduced in the end to something that is a purely private matter for me alone. It's quite impossible to think of it coherently as just to do with me. That in inevitably it engages us with um, questions that have to do with society, with community, with relationships, um, with the world. Now to illustrate this, um, we find uh, again in the Sanyutta Nikaya um, a very wonderful image. Some of you are perhaps familiar with it. It's the metaphor, or the parable really, of the city. And this strikes me as a preeminent image for a secular Buddhism. Let me read you the parable. Suppose monks, says the Buddha, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road travelled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks and groves and ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister and say, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and came to an ancient city. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city and sometime later it would become successful and prosperous, well populated, attained to growth and expansion. So in other words, the Buddha compares himself to someone who wanders into a forest, sees the remains of some ancient path that's overgrown, follows it and comes to the ruins of an ancient city and then goes out of the forest, goes to the king, or a minister, says, look, I found this thing, let's rebuild it. And, obviously, the community comes together 
and restores this city once again to its former grandeur. Now when the Buddha explains this parable, he says the, the, the path in the forest stands for the Noble Eightfold Path. The ancient city is a symbol for one conditioned arising, and he talks in fact of the, of the ten links, not the twelve, of conditioned arising. And he understands those links as refracted through the four. We don't have time to go into the unpicking this in detail. But basically, the ancient city stands for conditioned arising and the four. Embracing dukkha, letting go of craving, experiencing the stopping of craving and cultivating a path. Now what's curious is that that parable mirrors exactly the structure of the Buddha's first sermon, which starts with, I have discovered a middle way, the Eightfold Path. It then lists the four. This is dukkha, this is craving, this is, which is like the city. And then the Buddha says, by performing a series of tasks, I achieved this peerless awakening in which I fully understood dukkha, let go of craving, and so on. Here it's translated into a social picture. It um, starts again with the Eightfold Path that leads to the four, and then the person goes back to the society and gets the people to rebuild this thing, and the consequence is not that, in this case, that he attains awakening, but, sometime later, the city became successful and prosperous, well-populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So you have here a very explicit um, a vision of another kind of civilization. Um, it makes it quite clear that this practice of the Eightfold Path is not just about me getting enlightened, Maybe that happens too, which is all the better. But it is clearly now expressed as a social project. It's not just a project of refining my own person or being, but it's about creating another kind of um, a society. And we have to remember that uh, city in Latin is civitas, and civitas is the basis for our word civilization. In other words, a city, I think, is, is a metaphor for a civilization. It's important also to remember that at the Buddha's time in India, the first cities were just emerging. The, the society was moving from an agrarian-based village economy to um, the emergence of monarchies, which were governed from cities. And the cities were made possible because of the surplus wealth that had been generated by the um, rural uh, e economy and which allowed for the centralization of political power enforced by standing armies and at the same time it made possible the flourishing of philosophy and religious practice because men could wander and women could wander um, and be supported by arms and begging 
because there was a surplus in the culture. So the Buddha's time was one of enormous transformation on every level in Indian society. Not just religion, but politics and economics as well. And of course, the emergence of a new kind of uh, uh, social reality. And it's interesting to note that the Buddha's main bases, um, the, the Jetavan and the... Um, what's it called, the, uh, the, the, the bamboo grove in Rajgir and the Jetas grove in Savati were both based within about a quarter of a mile of the biggest cities of the day. They were dependent on those cities for support and they were basically teaching people in these new urban environments. So Buddhism wasn't about wandering off into the jungle and living off weeds. It was about... Um, it was about interacting with the newly emerging uh, bourgeois society. Now, I think it might be a bit grandiose to talk of uh, secular Buddhism as the, as, as, the, as the beginning of a new civilization. I wouldn't want to go that far. But um, I do think it's important to think of it as being more than just, as it were, a kind of therapeutic tool for making our lives more, more, more rich and full. It is indeed, I think, um, moving towards the emergence of another kind of culture. I'd prefer the word culture than civilization. And again, the word culture is etymologically linked to the word cultivate. A person who cultivates him or herself becomes cultured. We often don't notice that link, but it's quite clearly there. And in that case, the cultivation of the Eightfold Path, which is the task, or the fourth task of Elsa, is also, if when that's put into action by more than one person, it becomes the basis for the emergence of a new kind of culture. And what I think many of us have witnessed over the last say 30 or 40 years, is the emergence of a Buddhist culture in the West. And I include Australia there, even though geographically it's in the Southeast. But never mind. <laughs> in, in our modern world, and it's now I think this kind of thinking is also now permeating through into even traditional Buddhist countries in Asia. In other words, globalization, for all of its ills, is bringing people together and Buddhism is, in a sense, beginning to respond to the conditions of modernity, a globalized modernity. And that, I feel, is perhaps starting to give rise to a certain kind of Buddhist culture that we won't find in traditional Buddhist societies. It's particularly evident in the United States uh, through magazines like Tricycle or Buddha Dharma. You really do get the feeling that there's, there's some kind of cultural movement afoot and the extent to which often figures who are quite prominent in, in American culture, musicians and actors and so forth and so on, is again indicative of the Dharma somehow um, uh, f helping to form um, a wider cultural awareness um, within our modern times. So... I would take the metaphor or the parable of the city to be 
um, a way of thinking about how our practice is not solitary, but it is necessarily one that is participatory and that is formed out of relationships and friendships that give rise to what we can also call uh, a sangha. Now, sangha literally means community, but in many traditional Buddhist societies, sangha has also come to mean the monks and the nuns. And in fact, you often hear, um, I've often hear, you know, in some circles, Theravadin circles particularly, people say, well, now we've got to go and make an offering to the sangha. The sangha means the ones in robes who've taken vows. As though, you know, everybody else is excluded. Now, when you go back to the earliest texts, and again, we find this uh, throughout the Pali Canon, uh, the Buddha never speaks of the Sangha as a way of referring to the monks and the nuns. Uh, he talks of the Sangha as a fourfold Sangha, a community that includes monks, it includes nuns, it includes lay men, it includes lay women. But the real meaning of Sangha has actually got nothing to do with whether you are a monk or a nun or a lay person or a lay woman. It has to do as, uh, as to whether you have entered the stream, in, in, which means having entered into the Eightfold Path authentically, which is described in Elsa as A. So those who have entered the stream, who are now living their lives um, according to their own lights, um, who have somehow no longer just believing in this process, but are actually doing it, that is, whoever has done that is, a, is part of the Sangha. And this doesn't mean people have meditated for yonks and yonks and yonks. But anyone, and when we look at stream entry, um, in the Sangyutta Nikaya, particularly the penultimate chapter of the of, of the connected discourses, uh, the Buddha defines stream entry as a person who has lucid confidence in awakening, lucid confidence in the Dhamma, lucid confidence in the community, which we normally think of as the three refuges. That's how the Buddha defines a stream entrant. Someone whose life is now committed to the realization of these values. And this is certainly um, nothing to do with being um, an ordained member of a monastic order. And in fact, there are many passages in which the Buddha very clearly affirms that uh, men and women, lay followers, um, dressed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, I particularly like that bit, <laughs> have become independent of others in my teaching, have gone beyond doubt, have gained intrepidity. In other words, they've entered the stream. And they are, therefore, Sangha. So these early texts um, bring us back to a, a, a much more inclusive sense of what Sangha means. And it also brings us right down to earth. We're not talking any longer of exceptional spiritual attainments. We're actually talking of people who have, you know, sincerely dedicating their lives towards the realization of 
core values, and as I would explain that, through the process of ELSA. Now, we've gone a long way, unfortunately, from that early vision. And in fact, we now find that um, in pretty much all Buddhist traditions, we find a, a hierarchies of power, um, often with an enormous gulf between the, uh, the teacher or teachers and the ordinary lay person. And in fact, um, in some traditions, uh, the, uh, the teacher is considered to be effectively the Buddha on earth, um, to be, you know, completely enlightened person uh, that, re that should be afforded a total and unconditional um, reverence. And as a consequence, uh, the ordinary practitioner, the ordinary layman or laywoman, is largely in a subservient role, and possibly if they accumulate enough merit, um, which weirdly has to do with supporting the institutions run by these teachers, then at a future <laughs> life, perhaps, you'll get a chance to slowly progress on the path. Now, this um, structure of uh, the separation uh, between laity and the enlightened elite mirrors, of course, what we saw before in the shift from a pragmatic to a dogmatic approach, uh, an approach that's primarily concerned with praxis to one that's concerned with realizing some ultimate or absolute truths. And it also mirrors the way in which the Buddha, who started out as a human being, is quite quickly elevated to the status of a god. Now, all of this confirms um, a theory about religion that we first find in the writings of Ludwig Feuerbach, who was a 19th century follower of Hegel and a precursor of Marx. And Feuerbach argued that religion was a system of alienation. And that what happened in religious institutions and organizations is a gradual distancing of the ordinary person from the, um, the, 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 well, from the reality of their own primary goodness. In other words, wisdom and compassion are no longer, in a sense, in one's own possession, but they are increasingly... Um, monopolized by those in power, whether it be the Pope or whether it be some great Lama or Roshi or whatever. And that this alienation is an alienation from your own true nature. And the values are projected further and further away into an impossibly uh, distant and elevated um, uh, church or temple or whatever it might be and you thereby are disempowered. So, and you see this in Christianity, you see it, I think, in all religions. Um, and it seems to be a feature of how these systems evolve over time. And periodically, the distance becomes so great, it becomes unsustainable, and you get a revolution. I think this happened in China with the emergence of Zen, in India with the emergence of the Mahasiddhas, 
um, in Southeast Asia perhaps with the emergence of the forest tradition, in Christianity with the Protestant Reformation, in uh, Islam with the, with the Sufis or the Baha'is. And so this is a constant sort of tension. And I feel that likewise um, what's happening in certain elements of Buddhism in our present time is another um, moment of, in a way, crisis. You know, are these traditional models of authority sustainable? Do they work or is there a call now to recover the authority that we have given away and projected onto those authority figures, those in power? Now, of course, there's always a danger with any such thing that we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And it's already been mentioned in some of, the, both some of the points raised here, also in our other discussion groups. Um, but surely we need monasteries. Surely we need some sort of professional body who can train people. And I would not in any way dismiss that. Um, as I think I've mentioned, I would not be here now if, um, in my, my, my case, a Sera monastery in Tibet or Songwangsa Monastery in Korea had not survived for hundreds of years. Often, you know, in various very hierarchical um, organizations of power. In other words, these structures have preserved and brought down to us everything we're talking about now. So, it would be going way too far to say we just somehow have to sort of just abandon all of those things. What we probably do need, though, is another way to think about how we might um, you know, offer opportunities for in-depth study and training in terms that would perhaps be more suited uh, to our time. I don't have any ready-made answers for this, uh, except to acknowledge perhaps that even this sort of setting on a retreat, some of us have been here for two weeks, we've taken time out, we might go on these courses with some regularity. We might, in a sense, be training as we do so. But I feel, in some ways, this is probably not enough. And when younger people sometimes ask me that they want to go and dedicate their lives to the practice of the Dharma, what should they do? Well, actually, I often suggest that they go to Asia and they go to a traditional monastery and they become monks and become nuns and really dive into the formal training of the tradition. I think that's still a very legitimate thing to do. It's what I did, it's what most of my colleagues have done, but the thing that's also apparent in the last 30 or 40 years is that very, very few of those of people I trained within the 70s and 80s are still monks or nuns. This is a very valuable training for about 10 years or so, after which there's a very rapid fall-off. And people return to lay life, sometimes with a stigma attached. They've failed somehow. And they no longer have a position in the system. They're just ordinary lay people. And they have to somehow then learn to live by their wits. And I think arguably the most homeless people are not the monks and the nuns, who often have very nice, comfortable support systems, 
with you know generous Burmese and Thais and Sri Lankans willing to support them unconditionally as to you know you know to anything other than the fact that they are ordained the people who uh, the, the lay teacher who depends on dana who does not have an institutional backing who is in a sense wandering around the world as an itinerant teacher wherever they're asked to go that I feel <laughs> um, maybe I should retract all of this but, the, but, but there's something homeless about that one gets to spend very little time at home there's no, one has no base uh, and I do think one needs to acknowledge that it's, um, it's, it's a relatively insecure existence So I think things are being turned on their heads a bit. My own vision would be to be able to create structures in our society whereby people could perhaps rather than go to university could spend five or more years living as a monk or a nun in a training environment, doing study, doing practice, um, training to be teachers if that's what they wish to do, after which time they leave that training environment, return to the world as teachers, if they wish to continue, if they have a vocation as a monk or a nun to continue. Um, that's actually kind of what happens anyway, but it's not acknowledged as um, um, somehow appropriate. So perhaps one could try to re regularize that situation. That would be one possibility because I do think we, we, we will need always in, a, in any kind of spiritual religious movement um, people who are you know immersed in the ideas, immersed in the practices, who have received a sort of you know, formal training instruction that give them a kind of uh, a set of skills uh, to enable this teaching and these practices to continue. But in many ways, I feel it's also something that has to be broader than this old model of monk and lay. Arguably, that whole distinction is no longer so viable anymore. In the old days, monks were basically people who had education and lay people were those who didn't. Uh, we now live in a world where um, we have a education from the age of five to, say, 25, um, we have a far greater degree of leisure time. Um, we're interested in the sorts of things that traditionally would only have been taught in monasteries. Um, we're not, we wouldn't be content with a lay Buddhist existence, say, in Southeast Asia, which would largely be devotion to monks, making dana offerings, taking precepts, rarely much meditation, although that's changing. So I think the whole social economic condition we're in is calling for a rethink of what structures and what forms of community are appropriate. Uh, I do think it's important um, that we find spaces in our society, in our culture, where people can meet, strangers can meet, to discuss and to contemplate the values that matter deeply for them. I mean, this was traditionally the role of the church. Uh, in Buddhist countries, the role of the temple. 
But as we see in Christianity, there's a collapse also of, that stru of those structures. But I feel it is important to try to um, uh, support, in whatever way we can, the uh, continuity of those kinds of meeting places, whether they be in people's living rooms or in, in centers, or whether we need to try to imagine creating some public space in which we could uh, meet on a regular basis to explore and to celebrate together the values that we most deeply admire. And in this way, I feel a Sangha um, becomes a mutually supporting community of, of self-reliant individuals. Um, there's sometimes the sense that if you emphasize self-reliance, which I am, that you're somehow, again, giving in to individualism. But I think self-reliance is not about being a separate, cut-off individual, but it's actually learning to support others in becoming self-reliant and allowing also one's relationship with them to support your own sense of where you wish your life to go and how you wish it to flourish. Uh, I don't see any contradiction between the idea of individuation and community. In fact, I can't imagine one without the other. A community, to me, is a, is, is a genuine community if it, if it creates and supports each person within it to individuate, to, in a sense, realize their own potentials, to flourish as persons. Whereas a collective is, in a sense, a group of people who are expected to believe exactly the same things, to perform exactly the same uh, practices, and if you step out of line, you're ejected. And unfortunately, a lot of religions, including Buddhism, are more like collectives of common sets of belief and practice in which individuality is only barely tolerated. And you can only go so far before you're out. And I know this from first-hand experience. <laughs> So in other words, um, what these communities would um, encourage is what the Buddha calls Kalyana Mitata, which means good friendship, sometimes translated as spiritual friendship, but actually the word just means good, good friendship. There's a famous passage in which he says that the whole of the good life is good friendship. Um, much quoted. Interestingly, when he's asked why is that the case, the answer he gives is good friendship is important because it leads to people entering the Eightfold Path. Now remember, in entering the Eightfold Path, you become autonomous. You become aparapachya, independent of others in the teaching. So again, here you see that Friendship or community is precisely what supports your becoming autonomous. And this is actually there in the early canonical texts. And that's the kind of community I think that um, I would aspire to be part of. Uh, not one in which, as a teacher, I would make people dependent on me in any way, but as a teacher seeking to actually 
um, give people their authority back or help people recover their own authority and find an autonomy within their practice. So there's less and less need for the external of authority of any figure. And finally, um, I'd like to conclude with um, what Martin spoke of last night, which are the four bodhisattva vows in Zen. She covered that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, one of my friends, uh, Gil Fronsdahl, who's a Vipassana teacher in California, and also formerly a Zen priest, he pointed out that actually the four vows mirror the four tasks or the four truths. That um, although sentient beings are numberless, I vow to liberate them all. This is our response to the suffering that one vows to liberate sentient beings from, which of course is very close to the injunction to embrace suffering. Delusions are limitless. I vow to eradicate them all. Here I don't think we have much need for explanation. Um, the second task is to let go of craving, delusion. The third vow, Dharma gates are infinite. I bow to enter them all or master them all. How does that have to do with experience the stopping of craving? Well, if you think about it, when something stops, that opens up a doorway. It opens up a possibility. When you're no longer determined by your attachments or your fears, when those things stop, other possibilities open up. And they would be, as it were, what they call in Chinese, Fa-men, Dharma gates. And a Dharma gate, through going, going through which, you then get to the fourth vow, the Buddha path is endless, I vow to follow it. Well, that clearly refers to the Eightfold Path, or the fourth of the four to cultivate a path. So that framing of the vows, I think, overlaps very beautifully onto uh, the four tasks, but it turns them into explicit commitments, vows. So I would like to conclude on that note that this perhaps is a, a commitment, a vow that we are free to engage in and the engagement with those vows is in fact the engagement with embracing dukkha, letting go of grasping, experiencing the stopping of that grasping which opens up the gateway to the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. Thank you. <laughs>